Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. Today we're talking to well-known author and military historian Sam Mitchum, who many of you will remember from our interview, The Desert Fox, The Storied Military Career of Edwin Rommel. Dr. Mitchum has authored over 40 books, and this book, The Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, is his latest It's one of those books that you can open any page and find a fascinating story. And I've got a bunch of questions for Sam about many of these generals. The South was outmanned, outgunned, and outmanufactured. But they had some true fighters and leaders, and you're going to meet some of them today. Just ahead. Sam, welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Very good, thank you. You've written over 40 books, including It Wasn't About Slavery, Exposing the Great Lie of the Civil War. What made you decide to write the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals? Well, I've I've always kind of wanted to do that. Ezra Warner wrote a uh, Generals in Gray book uh, in 1959, but he was limited to about 200 words per general, and I wanted to... uh, I didn't think that was enough. It was about 80,000 words for a book. Um, Regnery agreed to publish a single-volume edition, but uh, at 250,000 words. Uh, So I was able to do about three times as much information per general as uh, Warner was. I'm not cutting Warner at all. He did a great job, made a very valuable contribution. But um, I just felt there was more to the story than he was able to put in it. And there were some fascinating generals, uh, who was the most successful Confederate general of them, of them all? Uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Ah. Uh, he, he, uh, you asked Robert E. Lee after the war who the uh, best general in the Civil War was, and he said, that's a man I never met. His name was Forrest. And they never did meet. But uh, Forrest won some incredible victories. Uh, he also rose from private to lieutenant general in four years, which is uh, a pretty pretty awesome accomplishment in itself. What battles made him famous? Well, uh, Oklahoma did. Uh, the Yankees uh, got the, the best cavalrymen from the Western Front. It was sort of a green beret of Union cavalry. There were 7,000 of them. They armed them with sharps repeating rifles, which was arguably the best cavalry weapon of the day. Now they got the best horses, and they, um, the only wheel vehicles they had were cannons and uh, uh, ambulances. Uh, uh, Forrest met them with 2,500 men, but 600 of Forrest's men were recent draftees who didn't have weapons. So they only had, only had 1,900 armed men. And he told the unarmed men, get in line um, anyway. I know you can't shoot, but you can yell. And don't worry about it, uh, because you will have your pick of good Union weapons shortly. And uh, Forrest attacked the Yankees and uh, routed them and chased them 11 miles. And when the battle was over, he had all their artillery, all their ambulances, and... Um, uh, most of his men were armed with sharps repeating rifles. Um, <laughs> and then there was Bright's Crossroads, counting camp followers of 13,000 Yankees. Uh, Forrest had uh, 3,200 men. He uh, 
uh, uh, attacked them, and uh, it was the greatest use of uh, uh, the sun as a military weapon since uh, the book of Joshua. Uh, what he did, he let the uh, Union cavalry get ahead of the infantry. He attacked the cavalry, and it was Mississippi and, uh, in the summer. And uh, the Union uh, infantry had to double time to reach uh, the cavalry before it was destroyed. And running uh, down a road in Mississippi uh, in July is not a rational act anyway. And um, uh, at least five Yankees died of heat stroke. The infantry was strung out for miles and exhausted. And he knocked them down like so many uh, dominoes. the, uh, it took them uh, nine days to get from Memphis to uh, Bethany, Mississippi. It took them uh, two and a half days to get back. But uh, uh, they were on the run. Uh, Forrest uh, killed or captured more Yankees than he had men. And uh, then there was Lawrence uh, Crossroads, uh, Lawrence Plantation, excuse me, uh, Forest was outnumbered four to one, and no Yankees escaped. Uh, it was just one thing after another like that. Hmm. Um, I found some fascinating stories. I mean, that, that's what the whole book is about. You could, you could literally turn to any page in this book and, and just— and these guys, a lot of these guys you've never heard of. I'll give you an example, listeners. William Edwin Baldwin, okay? This is a, this is a Confederate general, battle-hardened, twice a POW— Wounded, I don't know how many times. He survives the Civil War and then falls from his horse one day, breaks his neck, and dies. Uh, incredible story on this guy. Tell us a little bit about William Edwin Baldwin. Well, he was uh, he was a good uh, combat commander, but he had a drinking issue. Um, so several of them did. And um, apparently... Uh, he had a broken stirrup that caused the fall, but um, alcohol was a contributing factor to his death. And that's uh, a uh, real, real shame he died that way. Um, uh, Bob Toombs was another one who had a drinking problem. Uh, he would have been um, president of the Confederacy, many people think, if he hadn't been for his alcoholism. Uh, one of his uh, uh, admirers said that uh, um, stupid, he would have been dismissible. Sober, he would have been a statesman for the ages. Unfortunately, he was neither. Um, he uh, was a senator from Georgia, and uh, there was a lot of uh, sentiment uh, when the Confederacy was formed to pick a president from Georgia because that was the most populous state in the original seven states of the Confederacy. And they sent a delegation to Bob Toombs, and um, he was drunk as a lord, and uh, he had uh, let tobacco juice drool from his mouth to his shirt, white shirt, and made a very bad impression. So the uh, delegation opted for Jefferson Davis. Toombs later... uh, um, had a very mixed career as a general. Um, he um, failed to guard a ford as General Longstreet had ordered him to. It allowed a Union cavalry detachment to get in the Confederate rear. And they captured uh, General Jeb Stewart's headquarters along with his dispatch book. 
they almost captured Stewart. He uh, um, he had a fast horse and he jumped over a fence and escaped. But uh, uh, General Lee had a trap that might have destroyed the entire Union Army of Virginia. And uh, by uh, reading uh, Stewart's captured dispatches, the Yankees were able to avoid the trap. And um, General Longstreet arrested Toombs and put him in a wagon. I mean, he uh, uh, pretty serious charges. But um, I've got some questions you know, for you. My, go ahead. Regarding regarding Longstreet, there seems to be a division, according to your encyclopedia, uh, among historians as to how good a general Longstreet was. What was your opinion of Longstreet, especially at Gettysburg? Well, uh, he was too slow. Um, he wasn't in favor of the plan, but Longstreet, as General Lee said, you know, he was, he's a, Longstreet was a good general, but he is so slow. And um, uh, his lack of speed hurt us at Gettysburg. He he offered a he offered a battle plan at in Gettysburg to uh, to Sam Hood, and Hood refused it. Am I right on that? And that that plan no, would have, uh, that plan would have worked. What happened? What happened is uh, Longstreet insisted on following Denoli's orders to the letter, even though uh, they were six hours old. I don't think, and he, uh, Hood came up with a plan that would have flanked uh, the Union positions at the Round Top. Right, hills. right. And, yeah, it was uh, came up with the idea, right. And Longstreet refused to allow him to do it, and uh, that was a terrible blunder. Uh, Lee didn't expect rigid obedience. He uh, expected his generals to adjust to the tactical situation. Right, yep. And Lo Longstreet failed to do that. But um, Longstreet's one of your more controversial generals. He had his moments. And... Um, he had some bad moments as well. I wanted to ask you, this one question has always been in my mind. This is a great time to ask it. What caused Jeb Stewart's delay getting into Gettysburg? And, and, how, did, uh, and how did Lee take that? Well, Lee uh, uh, chewed him out about as badly as Lee's ever chewed out anybody. Uh, what happened, uh, Stewart got behind the Union uh, Army and intended to ride around it. He had done it twice, uh, very dashing, uh, grabbed a lot of headlines. But uh, the Union Army was retreating to the north, so uh, getting around the Union Army was a moving target. Uh, it kept extending itself, and it kept Stewart uh, uh, behind Union lines longer than he uh, needed to be. And uh, General Lee was, his bl was, was was blind, basically. And so he, uh, uh, his General Heath uh, blundered into uh, uh, starting the Battle of Gettysburg. And um, uh, with, with proper cavalry reconnaissance, uh, it probably would, it definitely would not have come down the way it did. I was saddened by uh, the account of General Barksdale uh, at Gettysburg, uh, Pickett's charge. He actually made it as far as a Union battery. Explain what happened there with him. Well, uh, he made it and captured the Union battery and pushed beyond it, but he was shot several times, uh, mortally wounded, and uh, 
when the um, uh, Confederates had to retreat, he was uh, left behind, captured, but he was so badly wounded he died the next day. Uh, incidentally, I had an ancestor involved in that charge, and uh, matter of fact, he's still there. Uh, he was uh, Lieutenant Christopher Columbus Magoo. He was killed, but that was one of the higher points. Um, uh, Marksdale was a uh, it was a fire eating secessionist and a politician and uh, just a naturally gifted commander. Uh, th- those two didn't always go together by any means. Pickett, long they they, they named ahead. that charge Pickett's charge. Pickett survived it. Was he on the front or did he stay back? Uh, he stayed back. Uh, the way it was set up. Uh, the brigade commanders uh, went forward, and uh, of course, there were usually about three or four brigades per division. The division commander had the option and um, of staying back and commanding from the rear or leading the charge, and Pickett stayed back. And incidentally, uh, Pickett's charge is a misnomer. Uh, there were Pickett's division was involved, of course, but two other divisions were. There were three divisions in the charge. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, um, the overall commander was James Longstreet. Yeah. Um, of course, he didn't want to launch it. He was right. But uh, um, Pickett, uh, Pickett was one of the more interesting generals. He finished last in his class at West Point. And the next year's cousin, Harry, he finished last in his class at West Point. But Pickett was um, a bit of a dandy. He liked to... Uh, uh, perfume his beard and wear his hair in ringlets, and, uh, but he was he was a brave man. Uh, although uh, in his last battle at Sailor's Creek, he kind of lost his nerve. He and uh, uh, General Bushrod uh, Johnson and General Richard uh, Anderson all ran away, and uh, Robert E. Lee found out about it and relieved all three of them of their command. Hmm. Uh, um, although, um, word, the dispatch didn't reach Pickett. The, uh, Army of Northern Virginia was obviously to, uh, coming unraveled the day before Appomattox. Uh, so, um, uh, Pickett did not receive word that he had been relieved and, uh, surrendered his division at Appomattox. Doing a lot of treasure stories here at 1001 Heroes. And one of those treasure stories that I still have it done, but I'm looking forward to, is uh, involves the Gray Ghost. Have you ever heard of a legend uh, about him in terms of uh, buried treasure? Oh, uh, there are legends about it. Of course, uh, the Gray Ghost um, was referring to John Singleton Mosby, who was a colonel. Uh, one of the more interesting generals to me was Zebulon York from uh, from Maine. Uh, his village uh, was uh, right on the Canadian border. You could almost see Canada from his uh, hometown. And he uh, went to Kentucky for his education and then the University of Louisiana, which is now Tulane. And he ended up in Vidalia, Louisiana, and became uh, probably the largest slaveholder in the South. He had he owned six plantations. He and his partner had wow. 1,500 slaves. What was his name again? Uh, Zebulon York. Zebulon York, okay. Yeah. He uh, outfitted his own uh, 
regiment, but wouldn't take the colonelcy. Uh, he didn't have a military background, he felt. He would only accept rank as high as captain. And went with the Army in Northern Virginia, and the 1st and 2nd Louisiana Brigades suffered such heavy casualties that he moved up by attrition. And uh, he was surrounded there in the Overland Campaign of 1864. And his aide said, Colonel, we are surrounded. And uh, Zebulon York said, well, that's good, because any way we fire, we can hit a Yankee. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, he, uh, he broke out. And then in the Third Battle of Winchester, his um, arm was shredded by Union cannon fire. It was uh, probably fired by the first main battery, ironically enough. And they took him to the hospital and amputated his arm. And a friend from Winchester, the town, came in and said, uh, come with me, uh, come to my house, we'll put you in the guest bedroom, and the Yankees won't b disturb you until you're well, recovered enough to survive the prisoner of war camps. And uh, York said, uh, the Yankees will never take me alive. And he jumped on a horse and made a remark to the effect, uh, tell the Yankees they can keep the arm. And then he rode over 20 miles on horseback an hour after having his arm amputated. Wow. Zebulon York could hunt bears with a switch. And... Um, uh, he made good his escape, and then later uh, uh, kept Davis's Yadkin um, um, River. He kept Jefferson Davis's only left remaining escape route open. Uh, of course, Davis was later apprehended in Georgia. But uh, York uh, York ended up recovering part of his fortune. He had a uh, talent for making money, and at the end of the war, he had nothing. Yankees took his plantations and took his plantation house. He eventually recovered it, but they had taken everything, including his drapes and curtain rods. <laughs> and he, but uh, he uh, owned several rental properties in Natchez and uh, uh, New York House and a steamboat line of five or six boats. And uh, during the floods of the, eight, uh, the 1870s, he... Uh, um, took uh, food for uh, flood victims for free and shipped them to him by his, his boats. He was a, he was a good man. Um, whoever did his obituary even uh, did a great job. They even went to some of his former slaves and asked uh, what they thought of him as a master and as a person, and they um, were unanimous. He was a um, he was he was a fine master. He would never let anyone abuse them. If a uh, couple of times overseers did beat the slaves, he fired the overseers. Wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate that. So um, York was an interesting fellow. Yeah. Another interesting fellow you might um, pay attention to was uh, Adam Stovepipe Johnson. He ah. uh, won one of them more incredible victories. Uh, he was the uh, first Confederate to capture a Union uh, city, and that was Newburgh, Indiana. He was uh, operating in it behind enemy lines, and uh, uh, the Yankees were defending Newburgh with 2,000 men, and um, Johnson only had 12 men. <laughs> and 
what he did, uh, he uh, mounted stovepipes on the running gear of a couple of wagons. Uh, so at a distance, it appeared that he had cannons. Well, the Yankees didn't have any cannons. So they evacuated the city, and he captured it with 12 men. <laughs> and, uh, it made uh, headlines in Europe, and uh, he became famous. That's a new one on me. I had yeah. not heard of them. That's pretty good. Yeah. Later, uh, near Princeton, uh, Kentucky, he, he was uh, shot and blinded. Um, blinded for life, and... Uh, he was 30 years old, but uh, he was a man of a great positive mental attitude. And he uh, refused to allow his handicap to become a handicap. He was captured, and they uh, exchanged him. He, he, re he applied for, for, for duty again, um, but um, the war was practically over. And he had 58 years of life left. Well, he used that to become an irrigation pioneer uh, on the Colorado River. He formed several business companies. He founded the town of Marble Falls, Texas, and even wrote a book. Uh, so, uh, oh, and he also found time to uh, have 12 children. So uh, uh, he had a full life even after he was blinded. Uh, very inspirational man. One of the generals whose name keeps popping up everywhere was General Beauregard. Tell us a little yeah, bit about Beauregard. Um, Beauregard was uh, uh, kind of a ladies' man. Uh, he uh, uh, looked like a uh, French field marshal. He patterned himself after the Napoleonic marshals. And um, his record was very mixed, but overall uh, very positive. Uh, he was won the first Battle of Bull Run. His uh, defense of uh, Charleston was uh, frankly awesome. Uh, with very little, he uh, he employed uh, mines, uh, what they call torpedoes in those days, and uh, kept the Union fleets at bay, and then. Uh, at Petersburg, uh, the Yankees are still remarks from General Lee. He was outnumbered over three to one and uh, bottled up uh, the entire Union Army of the James and the Bermuda Hundred uh, Peninsula. And they stayed there practically the rest of the war. Uh, Beauregard had his moments. Now, at Shiloh, he misfired. He didn't have a firm grasp of uh, what lo was logistically possible. And he had submitted to President Davis some uh, plans for invading the North. And, of course, Davis was a uh, West Point graduate. He uh, commanded a regiment. He's a war hero. Uh, saved the whole army at Buena Vista. And uh, Davis knew these things were not possible. And said so, and this created a friction between him and Beauregard, which uh, um, they simply could not get along. Hmm. And um, Davis was within a day or so of uh, uh, replacing Joseph E. Johnston with Beauregard. And had he done that, um, the South might have achieved its independence. But he uh, he selected John Bell Hood instead, and that was a disaster, which um, ultimately led to the destruction of most of the army at 
Tennessee. Mm. Uh, I take the view that um, the South could have won the war one of three ways, um, militarily, politically, or diplomatically. They could have won it. Uh, they lost the diplomatic chance when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation mm-hmm. because it was impossible for the uh, British and French to join the Confederacy. Their lower classes would not uh, tolerate it. Uh, militarily, uh, I think they lost it at uh, Gettysburg and Vicksburg. Um, some of your listeners are no doubt intelligent enough to come up with some other scenarios where they might have won militarily, although, uh, you know, they're unlikely. But the um, the last chance the South had was politically uh, to defeat Abraham Lincoln in the election of November 8, 1864. And uh, the Democratic candidate, uh, the Democratic Party, had a peace platform in its plank. They were prepared to recognize the Confederacy. And if the South had held Atlanta past Election Day, um, the Democrats probably would have won the election. And I'm quoting Abraham Lincoln there, because hmm. he thought he was going to lose. And um, But Atlanta fell on September 2nd, and... Uh, Union public opinion reversed itself. Uh, they could see the light at the end of the tunnel and were prepared to uh, uh, fight on to the end of the war. Of course, Lincoln was reelected, and that was it for the South. But um, I think if General Beauregard had uh, replaced Johnson on uh, July 17th instead of Hood, um, I think Beauregard could have held Atlanta. Um past election day, but, uh, you know, uh, anybody who has a different opinion, uh, their opinion's as good as mine on that. <laughs> we'll, return. We'll, return, we'll return to our interview with Sam W. Mitchum, the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, right after these sponsor messages. And, and we're back with Sam Mitchum, Jr., the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, I've got, you had an interesting story here, uh, Sam, regarding Major General Polignac. I hope I'm saying that right. Oh, yes. And, and, and I'm going I'm to give you the first part of it that impressed me so much. He said to him, you said, to him, the South was synonymous with courage, generosity, hospitality, and a noble lost cause, the right of free and independent states to leave a union that no longer served their cause. What was their cause, Sam? Well, uh, there were a number of things. Uh, among them, um, limited government. Um, the South, though, believed in the Jeffersonian idea of governs best, which governs least. Um, Lincoln uh, was a member of the Hamiltonian School. He wanted a, a strong central government. Um, Hamilton wanted uh, even worse than Lincoln. He wanted a Senate elected for life, president with almost royal powers. And um, Lincoln took some serious uh, liberties with the Constitution during the war. Uh, he arrested, he and his Myrmidons arrested over 32,000 northern people. 
I was suspended the right of habeas corpus. I couldn't uh, uh, pursue it legally, and they were just thrown in jail. And uh, some of those were newspaper uh, editors, right? <laughs> yeah. No, they, uh, they arrested over. Uh, well, they they suppressed over three hundred northern newspapers, and uh, they um, arrested almost half of the Maryland legislature. The uh, Entire Baltimore City Council, Baltimore mayor and chief of police. They took some serious liberties with the Constitution. In success, skilled training, tenacity, how did the Southern generals of the Civil War compare to the Northern generals? The Southern generals uh, were better, but only to a degree. Uh, they, uh, they were better by degrees, but not orders of magnitude. And the way I explain that is um, the South was invaded, and the best and the brightest were going to face the invaders, and uh, they joined the army. Um, the, and a lot of the best and brightest of the North didn't. Um, suppose you were a practicing physician or an attorney in Buffalo or Rochester. Uh, you're not going to have to face the Confederate Army. It's not going to be there. You're not going to have to defend your hometown. Yeah. And, um, um, of course, enough of the northern best and brightest did join the Army to make a difference. But um, uh, a much higher percentage, I think, of southern uh, best and brightest uh, were in the Confederate Army. And southern women were a factor there. They, um, uh, I didn't put it in the book, but... Uh, General Sherman uh, captured Savannah. He ordered the Confederate women to leave. Uh, They were packing suitcases, and um, um, uh, northern officers uh, wanted to inspect them. And the southern women wouldn't let them do it. And they went to General Sherman and said, we're not going to allow this. And uh, uh, Sherman said, "Uh, you... Southern women are the hardest cases I've ever seen. The men would have given up long ago if it wasn't for you. And he ordered his officers to leave them alone. They could not respect the suitcases. Um, they, uh, um, there's a town near here, uh, Farmable, Louisiana. All the young men who were physically fit joined the Confederate Army, except for one. Uh, the South, um, gosh, North Carolina, uh, for example, had um, uh, 100% of its young men of military age uh, went in the Confederate Army. Um, they, and some of them were state troops, which uh, you know weren't uh, engaged in heavy combat like uh, the Army of Northern Virginia, but. Uh, a lot of the uh, the best and the brightest uh, were, and uh, that's one reason the South lasted so long. I mean, uh, the North had a uh, white population of 22 million. The Southern white population was uh, 5.5 million, so that's a clear four-to-one uh, population majority for the North. And... Um, uh, Lincoln uh, recruited uh, 489,920 uh, foreign mercenaries from 15 different countries. 
uh, had every advantage in terms of numbers and um, manufacturing, uh, 92% of U.S. manufacturing in 1860 was in northern or border states. Um, ships, uh, when the war began, the Yankees had uh, uh, 94 operational uh, naval vessels, combat vessels. The South had 15. Um, by the end of the war, the Yankees had over six. 600 uh, operational combat vessels. The, uh, the, to me, the, uh, the astonishing part is not that the South lost, but it, that it came as close as it did to winning and held out as long as it did. And, of course, the generals was part of that. I've got a question for you. Um, sure. Today, our country is heavily polarized. Um, and it seems to me to be getting more polarized day by day, week by week. A lot of that, I feel, is caused or accentuated by the media. How big a factor was the media in the polarization that occurred prior to the Civil War? And oh, do, you, do, you, do you draw any parallels there? Yes, it was huge. Uh, the abolitionist media, especially, was uh, uh, bad. They uh, they would come up with all kinds of salacious stories that were not true. Um, uh, Robert E. Lee, for example, uh, they uh, uh, Lee uh, rarely got mad, but um, they had a story in a New York newspaper. Uh, about uh, how three of his slaves escaped, and uh, he had them hunted down with bloodhounds. Uh, the two, um, two were male. One was a pregnant female. And um, according to the story, the uh, uh, slave chasers whipped the two males. But uh, Lee ordered them to whip female and uh, with a bullwhip, and uh, they wouldn't do it. Not even these heartless men would do that to her. Uh, so Lee, according to the story, grabbed the bullwhip and beat her himself. And uh, Lee got so mad. Lee uh, had a, when he got mad, he had a glandular surge. His neck would turn red. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was blood red, and he could not even speak. He was so angry. Um, there were um, um, all kinds of things, and the Southern uh, press is uh, not always accurate either, but uh, the abolitionist press was especially egregious. In fact, uh, Robert E. Lee uh, once said something very sarcastic. He said, uh, uh, we have made a terrible mistake which may yet cost us our independence. We have made uh, we have placed all our worst generals in command of our armies and all our best generals as editors of our newspapers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, Jefferson Davis said something funny. There was uh, oh, Mrs. Roger Pryor. Uh, her husband was a colonel, and uh, she heard a rumor he had been promoted to brigadier general. Well, he, she went to a reception at the Spotswood Hotel there in Richmond that same morning, and uh, Jefferson Davis was there. 
And uh, she walked up to him and said, is it true my husband has been uh, promoted to Brigadier General? And Davis said, Madam, I have no cause to doubt it except for the fact I read it in this morning's newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, uh, I don't think uh, the Southern press or the Northern press are as bad as today's press is. I don't think the Southern news, the Southern newspaper editors did damage the Confederacy, but I don't think they meant to. And I'm not sure our present press isn't anti-American. Yeah, I'm not sure of that either, to tell you the truth. Well, he's done his job. Yeah, they've done, they've done a good job at that. It, and the, most people don't understand generals. I've written over 30 books on the uh, German Wehrmacht, Hitler, and so on, forces. And Hitler's generals and uh, the uh, present crop of American woke generals um, remind me very much of each other. Uh, The Germans uh, broke courage into two categories, uh, physical courage and civil courage. Hitler's generals no doubt had physical courage, but they didn't have civil courage. our generals today have physical courage, but I don't think they've got civil courage. And if they did, they'd, uh, they'd get rid of them. Uh, Obama got rid of one general every eight days. Yeah. Um, of course, the only difference in the, uh, Hitler's generals and uh, the present crop of woke generals is Hitler's generals were professionally competent. What do you think about present-day attempts to destroy the monuments to Confederate generals and change the titles of streets and schools that hold their names? Well, uh, the left wants no heroes but its own. Uh, and it's not limited to the uh, Confederate generals. Uh, it's, uh, they're just the low-hanging fruit. I mean, they destroyed yeah. a monument to Abraham Lincoln in Chicago the other day. They mm-hmm. uh, want to brand Lincoln a racist, and by today's standards, he would be. But you can't judge the people of uh, the past by the standards of today. You can't apply today's filter to what happened 150 years ago. You you can't do it. It's impossible. You have to, and that's where teaching of history is so important, and I don't think it's being taught in schools like it should be. I just created a monument of uh, Colonel Haig up in... uh, Wisconsin. He was a true believer abolitionist. Most of them weren't. But he thought the black people should be free and join the Union Army to fight for that purpose. That was his motivation. Uh, he uh, was mortally wounded at Chickamauga, died a day or two later. And he died for these people. Uh, what are they, what are, why are they destroying his monument? That's, that's, that's the last thing they should be doing. Yeah, there was a there was a Union commander. He commanded a black regiment or unit in South Carolina, and that he died, and there during the during that action and was buried with his men. Yeah, and someone strong. suggested they inter his body, but his family said no. He was very proud to serve with them. Yeah, I was Colonel uh, Robert Shaw, commanded the Fifty uh, Fourth Massachusetts. Uh, he. Uh, he was a very brave man. He was principled. He believed, a true believer in the abolitionist cause. 
um, an incompetent uh, commander. I mean, um, I look at that. That was a battle for uh, Wagner, also called Battery Wagner. Mm. I look at it a little differently from most people, but I'm a graduate of Command and General Staff College. I'm qualified through the rank of Major General, so I'm supposed to look at things um, a little differently. I saw an incompetent 24-year-old colonel volunteering for a suicide mission and taking his entire regiment with him. Uh Um, um, He, uh, what they didn't show in that movie Glory, Glory about him was uh, this was not the first attack. A week before, they had done the same thing with the White Regiment, and there was no change in the battle plan. And, of course, as you no doubt have heard, uh, that's the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again right. and uh, expect different results. And But by then, they had more intelligence. And uh, uh, Sean should have known that the uh, Battery Wagner was defended by the equivalent of three Confederate regiments. One of them was called a battalion, but it was bigger than the two North Carolina regiments. It was the Charleston Battalion. These boys were from Charleston, and they knew if the Yankees captured Barry Wagner, their homes, their wives and mothers, would be within range of heavy Union artillery. And they, they did their washing at home. Uh, and um, uh, they were going to, there was no way they were going to uh, give up that position. Uh, and and they didn't. I mean, uh, the whole Union battle plan was the uh, Union fleet would bombard Fort Wagner and um, keep the Confederates in the bombproofs till the Union infantry was uh, right on top of them, and uh, uh, they would capture them in the bombproofs. Well, that wasn't going to happen. And uh, the Yankee general should have known it. Uh, sending in the 54th Massachusetts was... Uh, uh, asking for a slaughter, and that's exactly what happened. Mm. Here's a question from left field. See how good you do with it. What would right. you recommend as being uh, some of the best movies that have been done that represent uh, both sides, North and the South, that, that what you would feel are the most accurate? Ooh, uh, Gods and Generals and Gettysburg. Okay, yep. Yeah, those those uh, those two were very accurate. Of course, uh, Stonewall Jackson wasn't well received in the North, so they canceled the third one, which was going to be uh, um, called a last full measure dealing with the uh, uh, last battles in the Eastern Front. And it's unfortunate I wish they'd done it. But yeah, you, we just mentioned um, Stonewall Jackson. One of one of your um. In your book here, the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, General John Decatur Barry, he was the general who gave his men the orders to shoot what he thought was a Union cavalry approaching their encampment. Do you want to kind of continue with that story? Well, Barry was a young man. He was 23 years old at the time. He had been a uh, captain had just been elevated to major. Uh, he was commanding a regiment. The colonel had been... Uh, um, killed, the lieutenant colonel seriously wounded, and um, Jackson went out on a reconnaissance, which, uh, frankly, 
it's not something Lieutenant General should be doing. Mm-hmm. And um, um, the 18th North Carolina was his regiment. It had moved into position after Jackson had left. And um, there are actually two uh, Confederate detachments trying to come back. One was uh, 60 yards away. Its senior officer was Major General A.P. Hill. And 100 yards away was Jackson's bunch. And um, um, someone yelled, one of the staff officers, don't fire, it's General Jackson. And Major Barry uh, shouted back, that's a damn Yankee lie, fire. And mm. the 18th North Carolina did. Um, of A.P. Hill's group, there were 10 men in its uh, group, uh, Seven of them were either killed or uh, wounded or captured. A.P. Hill uh, was not hurt. He hit the ground uh, just in time. Uh, and Jackson, uh, of course, was uh, lost his arm and uh, died as a result of his wounds eight days later. And the 18th North Carolina was called the saddest regiment in the Confederate Army after that. And there were three enlisted men who convinced themselves that they personally fired the bullets to kill Stonewall Jackson. And all three of these men eventually uh, committed suicide. Uh, General uh, James Lane was the brigade commander, and he defended Barry. He said that uh, uh, um he didn't use these exact words, but that A.P. Hill and Stonewall Jackson didn't have any business being where they were, and that um, um, Barry had done the right thing. And um, A.P. Hill did not contest that. Uh, so that same month that Jackson died, uh, General Lane recommended uh, Barry be promoted from major to colonel, and permanent regimental commander, and the promotion went through. So he was uh, a full colonel, and then later uh, slightly wounded in Gettysburg, and um, oh, he was down at um, Cold Harbor when uh, General Lane was uh, wounded, and he became brigade commander. And the Confederate Army had a rank by 1864. It was called Brigadier General Temporary Rank, or Temporary Brigadier General. And they promoted uh, Barry to replace Lane, so he became a general uh, for about six weeks. And uh, when Lane came back, he reverted to Colonel. Um, so I cover Barry because, like I say, for about six weeks he was a Confederate general even though he spent much of that time in the hospital because he was shot uh, near Cold Harbor and lost a couple of fingers. But uh, he returned to North Carolina, and uh, according to his family, he died of a broken heart less than two years after the war because he held himself responsible uh, for killing Stonewall Jackson. Mm. He was 27 years old when he died. What was the most surprising story that you turned up? This this represents years of research here. There had to have been some things that just were total surprises to you. Do you recall one in particular? Oh, no, there were several. Zebulon York's story was, uh, I thought, quite surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
Um, I didn't. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I, I initially intended for this book to be multi-volume, uh-huh. and um, when the regular history offered me the contract, uh, I already had four hundred thousand words. The average book is uh, sixty to seventy thousand words, <laughs> yeah. and they said you have to cut it down to two hundred fifty thousand words. Uh, so there are some stories that I had to cut out. Um, one of them was about Rufus Barringer, Brigadier General from North Carolina. And would you share that uh, one? Sure. He fell in love with a slave girl. Uh, it b- belonged to uh, uh, a neighboring plantation owner. And he offered to buy her, but uh, um, the neighbor wouldn't sell her. So he would visit her at night, and they had two illegitimate children, which uh, Berenger claimed, uh, which is kind of unusual. You know, it, it, that sort of thing happened, but usually the, um, the the white man would deny that, no, I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, uh, Berenger uh, acknowledged it. And uh, one of his sons was uh, Walter Coleman, and uh, after the war, Berenger had a talent for making money. And uh, he uh, took his biracial son under his arm in the business sense. And um, Walter Coleman became the uh, richest black man in North Carolina. Hmm. First, first black man in American history to own a textile mill. And uh, according to one source... Uh, in 1900, he was the richest African-American in the United States. Now, wow. I, don't, I don't know if that's true. I didn't put it in there uh, for that reason. Yep. But uh, uh, he was quite wealthy. He did better than a college professor, I can tell you that. And the, my final question for you today, who was your favorite Confederate general to write about? I wrote a book called Bustell Wide Open. It's about Nathan Bedford Forrest. And he... Uh, he was undoubtedly my favorite. He, uh, let me say, rose from private to lieutenant general four years, uh, personally killed 30 Yankees in one-on-one combat. He also killed a gunfighter. He shot two Confederates running away when Bedford Forrest, which your commander, was not a good idea. And he also uh, killed a wife, Peter. Um, beat his wife with a whip. And uh, Forrest knocked him down and the guy came at Forrest with a knife and actually cut Forrest's hand. Forrest knocked him down. Uh, the wife beater scrambled for the knife. Forrest picked up an axe, and when he came at him again, he hit him in the head with it. And he made no attempt to use the flat end. Uh, and it was kind of funny in the uh, in the trial. They, they tried Forrest for murder, and he was acquitted. Uh, in, in the trial, Forrest said... Uh, but I only hit him once, and I'm sitting, you know, sitting there reading this saying, General Forrest, how many times do you think you've got to hit a man in the head with an axe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, he was acquitted. They killed 34 men we can document. We're talking today with Sam W. Mitchum, Jr., the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, just released now, Regnery History. So all you listeners, it's a great book. It's a good coffee table book because you could open it up to any page and you will recognize, if you don't recognize the general, 
You'll recognize how others are involved in the story at places and with generals and with people that you do know. So everything just kind of ties together beautifully here, and the stories are fascinating, uh, entertaining, <clears throat> enlightening, and a, just a, a great history to keep on hand. The Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals. Sam, I want to thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Sam, I understand you have another book coming out in September called Voices from the Confederacy. Could you share Could you share one of the stories in that for us? Okay, there was this uh, young uh, African-American. She was a slave. Her, her name was uh, Ida Lee Adkins. Um, and um, she was eight years old. She liked her, really liked her master because he'd go to Raleigh every so often and uh, bring her back candy. Uh, she really didn't care for her mistress because uh, Idly had a sweet tooth and she tried to steal sugar and the mistress always kept her. Probably got a spanking out of that. But the Yankees showed up and um, um, they tied up the master and were looting the plantation and including the storehouse. Well, of course, uh, Idly knew that uh, they wouldn't have anything to eat. And they were stealing the silverware and all sorts of things. And she tried to cut her master loose. And a uh, Yankee um, tried to catch her. They said he was going to cut her tongue out. But uh, she escaped. She got out back. And uh, uh, she thought very quickly. Uh, they had uh, The South didn't have any sugar, so everything was sweetened with honey or watermelon juice. Well, they had bead boxes, called them bee gums. And uh, she took a limb and knocked down the bee boxes and stirred up the bees. And they were after her, and she ran right into the middle of a Union Cavalry detachment. <laughs> and um, the bees were stinging Yankees, and the Yankees were cursing. But as Idle said, well, what does a bee care if you curse it? And they were throwing Yankee cavalrymen high into the air, and uh, the horses broke loose, and... Uh, um, ran away, and the Yankees were chasing the horses, and the bees were chasing the Yankees. Uh, uh, Adley said uh, some of the Yankees ran faster than the horses. They dropped everything they were stealing and uh, uh, disappeared over the horizon. And um, the uh, Mrs. Adkins uh, cut Mr. Adkins loose, and they said, Adley, you saved us all. And she took a gold ring from her finger and put it on Adelie's hand. And that became her prized possession. It's probably the only piece of jewelry she had. And um, uh, in the 1930s, when Adelie was an old woman, uh, the federal writer, writers from the Federal Writer Project interviewed her, and she was still wearing that ring. <laughs> How about that? But, uh, well, a unique story. I mean, an eight, eight-year-old a black girl routed an entire Union Cavalry detachment. That's uh, <laughs> highly unusual. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a great story. And that's from yeah. Voices of the Confederacy. You're going to have that one out in September. We'd like to be able to talk to you about that, uh, so please do get in touch in September, and we'll cover that one. All right, I certainly will. We're talking today with Sam W. Mitchum, Jr., the Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. I know our listeners will enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.